Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mike Boris. Within an instant, flash floods have destroyed the thousands of homes that reside along the northeast coast of Australia. Years of energy, money and lives have been swept away by what is everyone refers to as an unprecedented event. But it's becoming apparent, though, that our country's response to a natural crisis isn't just working. It's just it's out of date and it needs to be updated. Not only that, but it has diminished the confidence of people seeking to invest their lives and their businesses in these areas. And without that confidence, the future of Lismore, Ballina, Mullumbimby and many other areas remain completely, just totally unstable. Andrew Constance, the former New South Wales Transport Minister, running in the marginal seat of Gilmore, witnessed firsthand the savagery of the Black Summer Fires during 2019 and 2020. Personally witnessed it. I want to sit down with him and discuss what the hell's gone wrong. What are the preventative changes and what are the natural reactions that we need to employ to manage these disasters better for the future and to build confidence back into our communities? So let's get into it. Andrew Constance, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thanks for having me, mate. Uh, former member for Bega, state government, and uh, now the uh, current running member for the Liberal Party for Gilmore. Yeah. Down the so south it's, coast. It's, it's interesting because I haven't been an MP for the last couple of months, so it gives you a different perspective not being being in parliament, that's Look, for sure. Well, you can watch on the sidelines to some extent. It gives <laughs> you more latitude to what you're going to say. I just want to ask you, where where is Gilmore? So I'm, I've got a general sense of it. Of it, but what does Gilmore cover? Which area? Look, it, it's a 200 kilometre south coast seat from uh, Churros in the south up to uh, Kiama in the north. Um, you know, all of those wonderful villages that, that dot the south coast along with sort of the main town centres of, of Batemans Bay, Ulladulla and, and Nowra. Does it go as far as uh, Pambula and Marimbula? No, it, it pulls up uh, just uh, south of Maruya. Right, at, right. Uh, yeah, great. At Churros Heads. Um, so, uh, you know, for me... It's not unfamiliar territory because uh, about 25,000 residents in Gilmore I've represented for 20 years. So, uh, you know, for me it's it's great to be able to sort of uh, represent those communities still, hopefully, uh, and then, of course, uh, campaigning uh, up to Kiama. And, I mean, you're not only known for this, but you're probably more famously known in terms of your more, more recent MP duties Um as a result of the bushfires that we had a couple of years ago and um, you were affected by the bushfires because you lived down the south coast. Um, maybe because this, we want to talk about the floods and the effects on small businesses in New South Wales, but I guess you're probably well positioned, not probably well positioned, you're definitely well positioned to talk about the effects on people, whether you're a small business owner or not, of natural disasters. It's been done before, but I wouldn't mind you just sharing with me now what is the immediate effect of a natural disaster on you and your colleagues down there? And then what's the enduring effect, sort of how you are now? Look, I think it's fair to say, I mean, we're experiencing events we've never experienced before as humans. 
Um, it changes you forever. Like there's no point in pretending that it doesn't. It does. Uh, you can't stop thinking about it. It doesn't matter what hour of the day or time of the day when, you, when you're left traumatised from these types of things, you, you never get over it. So I think there's got to be a realisation, particularly through bureaucracy, uh, through government, that people change forever as a result. And when you see people who lose everything and then you might be one of the fortunate ones who goes through the experience but still holds on to your home or whatever or your business and you see people you love and your community go through so much trauma, it's really hard. We, we as a country don't do mass trauma well. We don't do well-being well. Um, we don't recognise ourselves as human beings. Typically, you're seen as a, you know, a job lot number in a, on a, you know, piece of bureaucratic paper somewhere. Um, and we've got to humanise this. You know, we're seeing a lot of change to our environment. We've got to be thinking differently about mitigation and land management practices. But at the end of the day, we're all human. Um, doesn't matter how you vote or you know who you are. And to see so much pain, like even just looking at the floods and the images on the TVs and, you know, people openly crying in the streets. One thing we did very well, I think, initially with the fires is that that we had this unity in survival and then an incredible unity in uh, recovery, Um, even though we had the COVID pandemic knock everything for six. Hopefully that won't happen with the floods. So we will see a strength within individuals, uh, within the community. And I wish we could get politics and the politicians out of it because we, we need very significant change in the way we look at these things, how we look at ourselves as humans. We look at our environment um, and the issues that are affecting our environment, but also most importantly, uh, mental health and wellbeing has got to be the number one issue. And uh, when you see people who are being plucked off roofs, um, you know, that, that's an image which will never leave those, those individuals. Uh, it'll be very painful for a long time. So you're talking to a guy here who lives in the city and I've never experienced these traumas. I mean, I, as you probably know, as you do know, I went down, I forced myself to go down to see what happened with the bushfires and I was sort of shocked. But everything that I saw, a bit like in life, was as an observer, I was observing things. I wasn't a participant. I wasn't part of it. It didn't affect me. And pretty much everybody, including the politicians in Macquarie Street and State Government and all those in Canberra, um, very few of them, very, very few of them are actually participants. 99% of them are observers. How do we, how does someone like you, you're a participant and it affected you in lots of ways, how do you get the story across to us? Because, I mean, all of us are looking, we're, we're observers about what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, we're observers of what's going on in Taiwan and Hong Kong or Hong Kong in particular more recently. None of us, me, us, we don't really understand what you mean by trauma. Um, we don't understand it unless we've actually felt it. And nor do the politicians. How do you get that across to them? I mean, what is it? I mean, is it just a visit like Scott made the other day or is it Dominic Perrottet made a visit? I I didn't actually get the feeling, mate, when I went down to Mogo and I I went to Malua Bay and when I went down there, I I mean, I I felt sorry for everyone. I was empathising. But I didn't really, I don't really understand. I went went back home to my nice cosy digs. Um, How do we get this through to people? I always felt... uh, if, if Sydney lost 2,000 homes in a major natural disaster in the centre of town, how different the response would be. Um, 
and that's nothing against city people, but we are exposed to the natural elements a little bit more because we don't have concrete and drainage and, you know, those types of things around us. And um, it wouldn't matter if it's fire or flood or whatever pops up next. Um, you, 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 you can't really, I think, um, understand it unless you live it, um, unless you stand there as I did and just see, uh, you know, what was a massive firestorm, you know, flames 100 metres above the tree canopy coming at you till you actually think life's over, um, that's it. And wouldn't matter if it's 14 metres of water or, or you know, as I said, 100 metre high flames. It, you go through that experience and then you have to go through weeks afterwards um, of coming to terms with that whilst you're still trying to look after your loved ones and your community. Uh, you're seeing such devastation around you. You're seeing the emotional toll. Um, so that that where, you know, we until you experience it, you don't really get it, to be honest, Mark. Um, but, you know, our, our political leaders, they're trying. They're trying to be empathetic, both Labor and Liberal, doesn't matter. But there is this now, this, we've got to have this reckoning where we can't just believe that political leadership will solve all of these problems. It won't. It's like pretending that you get, you, your house is going to definitely get a fire truck arrive in the middle of a firestorm. It won't. You know, there's only a handful of trucks, but, um, you know, there's thousands of homes under threat. It's also like what we saw up on the north coast. Um, not everyone was going to be able to get a rescue because these events are so significant now. Um, even this sort of thinking, oh, well, the Defence Force can just come in and everything will be okay. It's not. Nothing is okay in this world anymore for a lot of people. So, you know, look, I think we've got to think differently about how governments and politicians should respond in that regard in recognition that they can't necessarily overcome, can't be in the shoes of the victims, um, but they, they do need to try and think differently about how you can mitigate against the effect. And therein lies the big challenge. We've got a lot of exposure, uh, a lot of areas prone to fire risk, a lot of areas prone to flood risk. So we've got to start to think differently in that in that sense and not expect of our political leadership that they are going to be able to solve everything they can't. It seems to me, though, Andrew, that our response today is statistical. Do you think we've got to stop looking at it on a statistical basis and forget about all the modelling and just make the assumption it's going to happen. Let's assume it's going to be 20 metres next time. Therefore, let's build a, re a response plan now. Is that a better way of looking at it I think perhaps? so. I think so. And people need to be part of that response. Um, you know, I, I think it's terrible where we're expending all this energy at the moment on, well, you know, was ScoMo there or Albo there or... That's not going to help the poor person who's That's all bullshit. sitting in the street. Yeah, sitting in the street with nothing yeah. in tears as, you know, army trucks are pulling up and, and taking all of their personal effects and their belongings and throwing them in a dump because it is covered in mud. Yeah, we're not connecting right. It's, it's just this connection. So uh, I think there is an obligation and responsibility with future events to think differently around the individual up front and in advance of that, looking at how we can better prepare ourselves uh, as human beings, particularly those who live in the regions. I mean, yeah, everyone's subject and knows there's going to be fires and there's going to be floods, but the magnitude and the scale of these events have changed. 
Um, so we're we're living differently now, and and therein lies, I think, the big challenge for for any political leader. Well, what do we actually do, and how can we, you know, help people in a more constructive way? So, Mogo as a community got belted by the fires, and then they got belted by a flood two weeks before Christmas. A lot of those small businesses there didn't have insurance because they couldn't get it. Yeah. So therefore, do we look and think differently about how we actually support? I mean, why would you go into business in Mogo potentially if you can't get insurance? Totally. It's, it's had two years of natural disasters now which have knocked everyone for six. Governments, yes, have stepped in with the business grants, but we should be thinking differently about, well, how do we, how do we turbocharge our resilience um, in a different way to what we, we think we should be? And what do you mean by resilience? I mean, what's resilience to you? I mean, as opposed to personal resilience, yeah. what do you mean by our resilience as a community? That includes small businesses, et cetera. Well, I think we're, I mean, we're looking at resilience the wrong way at the moment. Um, so we've got resilience in New South Wales. We've got resilience at a national level. The national level, it should be about ensuring we do have those critical supplies. So we've now lost in excess of 5,000 homes between fires and floods in the last two years in New South Wales. Now, to rebuild without necessarily having the tradespeople in the bush or, you know, even the price of timber quadrupling in the way that it has. My expectation is that government should be trying to ensure that those critical supplies for our community, it wouldn't matter if it's pharmaceuticals in the middle of a pandemic like we saw, through to AdBlue in diesel or urea for fertilising farms or, in this case, basic building supplies so that people can get back on their, their feet. My expectation is at a national level, we should ensure that we have those critical supplies made in Australia by Australians on hand for when these events happen. Then at a state level, uh, we should be thinking differently about land use, thinking differently about resilience and mitigation, strengthening people, knowing where the exposures are in the state and ensuring that we can try and do our level best. So those 2,500 homes lost in the in the northern rivers, I mean, there has to be a different think thinking around, well, how do we rebuild? Um, but it's not a discussion for right now because there's thousands of people who are homeless. There's thousands of people who don't have a bed right now. And that's where the focus and the energy needs to be put. And and this is the challenge. When, when you're in the middle of trauma and a disaster like this, the last thing you want to hear is squabbling happening above you. You don't want to see it on your TV set. And that's that's where we've got to grow up. It's where we've got to change the body politic. It's where we've got to think. Is that an Australian push. thing? Is that an Australian thing? Or I don't know if it happens in other places, but is it, it seems to be like like we're all blaming each other and, you know, like the media is partly to blame. You know, they'd love a short, quick hit, hit on a politician. I mean, I saw Scott go up there. Um, and I knew, when he was going, I just knew it was going to happen. He was on hiding to nothing. No matter what happened, he was just going to get hammered. Good on him that he went there, but... Mm. Still, like it probably was ill-advised the way he did it in some respects. Why do you think we get bogged down so quickly or so easily in the uh, blame game? I think the first mistake is to make it about the PM. You've actually got to zero back in on the the poor person who's lost everything, Mm. the poor person who's been pulled off the roof, now going back to their home a week or two later to find nothing. But whose responsibility is that, like to, to zero in on that individual as opposed to the PM? I think the political leadership of this country needs to stand up and say enough's enough. Uh, we expect change. You mean uh, talk to the media outlets, you know, ring them up and say, listen, stop this shit. No, I think you've got to you've got to look to having the experienced personnel to be able to lead the recovery. I mean, I, I'm mates with Dom, but I was horrified when Dom Perrottet said, oh, you know, I'm going to lead the recovery. Well, no, that just makes it political. 
Yeah. And, and we need you governing the state as Premier. Yeah. And we need to make sure you, you're cutting across all the bureaucratic BS to make sure that those people are supported. This is where the right appointment at the right time, and it should happen as the disaster is unfolding so that the first thing that's announced is the right type of recovery coordinator on the ground immediately. I, I saw the best of it with Hugh and Ferguson down in the Tarthra fires. Make the announcement straight up and get that person on the ground and get them wrapping around those most in need. Um, and because the scale of this is so different now, um, you know, we've got to make sure that we, with all the personnel who are going on the ground, don't don't bring people from Sydney who can't even pronounce the local town or village name. You, you really do yeah. need to think differently about how you're going to be prepared. And we can do that. We, we're a smart country. Um, in terms of the Australian Ocker thing of knocking the poly, um, it's not helping anyone at the end of the day. I mean, you know, Bagging scamo, bagging elbow, whatever it is, that's not going to that's not going to find someone a bed, um, and and get them back on their feet as quickly as possible. And that's what this should be about. Um, so I, I think we've got to put into perspective the society that we are and think differently about about how we respond. That's why the appointment of that figurehead, and we, we've got some great people. You know, this country has some incredible people who know how to rebuild communities after disasters. So let's start thinking differently. If I was somebody. Thinking about setting up a business in Lismore. By the way, I do have a business in Lismore, Yellow Big Road does, and we have one in um, we have one in um, Ballin, and we have another one up at Kingscliff, and they're all being destroyed. Um, and if I was thinking about re-establishing the business um, and say moving to run one of those branches that we have up there, um, I would be thinking to myself, well, I don't really go up there because it's going to be a problem potentially in the future again. And the only way I would be convinced that it wouldn't be a problem. Well, it's going to rain again. <laughs> there's there's no yeah. doubt about that. And we can't fix that environmental issue if it is an environmental issue. We can't fix that at the moment. That's sort of a, a bigger issue. It's a longer-term issue, a bigger issue. But let's assume it's going to rain and it could rain heavy and, you know, the infrastructure might result in there being a lot of water in the area again. I would want to know, one, and this is where government needs to help me or give me confidence, one, I can get insurance to cover the fit-out cost of my office or shop at a price which I can afford, not one that I'm going to get penalised for because it's there's been too many events in that environment. Two, I want to know that if it does rain and the rivers rise and all that ha- stuff happens, that I will be able to get out of there safely. In other words, I've got plenty of notice and that there is a, an exit way out. So I, I want to see there's a machinery to get me and everybody out of there, assuming I'm living there as well. And th- next after that, that the insurance company that I make my claim from, um, the cost of rebuilding or refitting um, is not going to be ex- extravagant because there's going to be a shortage of supply. So like you said earlier, security of supply would be an important thing for me and that I can get someone to do it in time in a timely manner. Uh, I don't mean wait for a tradesman for two years. Um, those things... Uh, if that was laid out in front of me and I knew that these things are all set up, then I might make a decision to go back to Lismore and reinvest because you've got to get someone to reinvest. You've got to get people like me to come mm. and say, I'm going to reinvest in there, Kingscliff, Lismore and back in Ballina. Because if, and when I reinvest, that means I employ tradespeople, you know, I, I employ staff. Um, we have our own product, our mortgage product to offer people around the area who want to, you know, want to buy a home or whatever it is. Um, and there, and you multi- there's a multiplier effect from that and everyone else will be in the same position. How do you do that? I mean, who's the dude or the woman 
Because right now we've got SES, we've got this group, we've got the, the, all these different groups, we've got the army, everyone's offering their help, all well-meaning. But it just doesn't seem to, it doesn't make, still doesn't make me confident that I should go back and reinvest there. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I feel after the fires is that nothing's changed. Yeah. We've gone back to the same bureaucratic processes. So uh, classic example, we lost all our telecommunications because the fires melted them. Now, as simple as it sounds, putting a 20-metre concrete apron around the base of your main telecommunication towers so that the next fire when it comes goes out before it hits the base of the tower and melts it, that's common sense. But that's not happening. But why Why isn't that happening? Because we, we, we've gone back into our usual practices with, oh, these, these departments are in charge of this thing. If I see another review or another report commissioned after a natural disaster, I feel like screaming. I mean, there's been 60 reports into bushfires in the last 50 years. It's got us nowhere. Same will happen with the floods. So the first and foremost response to your question, A, you want to make sure you protect life. So when, when these events happen, you've got to be able to protect life and get people the necessities quickly. Water, electricity, petrol, food. Comms. Comms. So let's step back from that and think about, well, how do we build that infrastructure into, in preparation so that it doesn't melt or it it's, it's capable of surviving such an event. So protecting life first and foremost. Then when you actually have a look at what's required to rebuild, um, first of all, you've got to build in resilience. So, for instance, you don't want to see people trapped where they're not able to make decisions to move on with their lives after such an event. So you don't want people still two years on trying to work out whether they're rebuilding or not or still living on their parcel of land in temporary structures and that's the last thing you want to see. Insurance is driving a lot of our problems. Mm. So the question then becomes with the fires, one of the biggest problems that we had is that people were underinsured. In fact, Jen and I built our place three years before the fire and we were even massively underinsured. Explain what you mean by underinsured though. So So planning requirements change. The cost of the rebuild, of course, changes because of escalation in the prices of rebuilding. And also extra rebuilding. Yeah. You have to do extra things to mitigate right. for a fire. So with bushfires is a classic example where we have the, the blaze attack levels or the bowels, as they call it, changing the requirements in terms of the home rebuild. But that isn't necessarily reflective in the insurance premium you're paying annually uh, to cover yourself. So what happens is people get a check after the disaster, great, but then they go to rebuild. It's much more. It's much, much more, hundreds of thousands of dollars more. And then, okay, well, let's put a temporary structure on our block, be it a caravan or a pod, till we can try and work this out. And, and that's where people are getting trapped in terms of their recovery. I dare say, I mean, flood insurance is just unattainable for a lot of Australians, a lot of business, uh, a lot of householders now. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And you need to look at, well, how do you underwrite that? How do you actually give that coverage to give that confidence so that people 
will go back and rebuild in these communities having lost everything. And there will be always a certain percentage of people and every person is different, every life path is different, but people will opt not to go back to Lismore after this event. It's a sad reality. Just like I saw in my own community, people leave our lane forever and never return because of the trauma and the difficulties. So, you know, there's no doubt in terms of the rebuild of the CBD and, and the economic heartbeat of Lismore, there is going to be some very obvious challenges there, which will require some different thinking. Think outside the box and look at how government can respond differently. But also beyond Lismore, go and look at the next Lismore. Go and try and work out and map so you know and so that the insurance companies don't quadruple the premiums as a result, work out a way in which government can intervene so that you can give that confidence. And that, that you know, I mean, I hear suggestions around the, the sovereign wealth funds and how they should be investing uh, in, in terms of insurance. Uh, I do think we need a, nat- you know, a natural disaster fund, which is about getting payments straight out and, and also looking at how you can uh, gain that confidence to rebuild. Naturally, um, when you see a flood like Lismore is where it's two metres above any existing record, that does change the goalposts in terms of how you rebuild that community. Uh, and there isn't a simple answer for that. There is no simple answer which which says to you, Mark, yep, go back to Lismore. Um, but if you can sense the activation is good and healthy and there's thinking in, in, in terms of the rebuild and the very nature of the buildings and how you could potentially better manage the water flow, that, that would be the type of thing, I think, which, which should hopefully give people confidence. The role of the army, a lot of criticism flying around the place at the moment. Um, we're, we're hearing a lot about uh, what the SCS should have done or didn't do. Um, blame game again, media's <laughs> the propensity to throw blame at an individual for me is outrageous because no one person can be at fault. There's whole departments and there's not a whole department, there's whole departments and then lots of departments as well, you know, within government. And also, you know, the community to some extent has some responsibility for this as well in terms of the responses, et cetera. But the role of the army, why, what do you think about that? I mean, is, is the army the right organisation to be coming and rescuing people and uh, throwing rubbish out the window? Look, um, first and foremost, we need to be honest about this. Hmm. These are highly qualified people trained in defending Australia. Um and they're typically being called in as emergency responders. There's always going to be questions around who should be making that call. Um, the reality is the Air Force, the Navy and the Army saved 113 people off rooftops in the last fortnight. Uh, we even saw it last week with Squadron 816 out of Albatross uh, where a chopper left uh, basically now to fly to Western Sydney and pluck a mum and two kids off a roof. You know, 113 lives saved uh, because of their actions. Now, the question becomes, the expertise around emergency management has always traditionally been at a state level. But what we also have to recognise is the RFS, the SES, the Surf Lifesavers, Marine Rescue, the list goes on, they're all volunteer-based. So if they don't have enough equipment, enough resources to be able to manage it, which traditionally have in the past, then... That's like, you know, that's a good thing. But at the moment, because of the magnitude of these events, let's call a spade a spade. The volunteer-based organisations at state level can't respond because the scale is too big. So that's where you see the community getting involved. And the reality is no one should expect living in rural areas, and I'm 
I think most people are of this expectation. You're not going to necessarily have a fire truck turn up if there's a fire because um, there's thousands of homes under threat and there's not enough trucks and not enough emergency service personnel. Same goes for the floods, which is why we saw those images in terms of private boat owners going and rescuing people. There is no doubt there is a role uh, in, in terms of the defence forces, but everyone needs to be under the ex expectations in that they're not going to automatically be there straight away, but they, they might be there to help assist with cleanups and where possible and they can be brought in for emergency rescues, so be it. I think we do need to have a, a rethink around, okay, if the state is responsible for the calls, which they are, about bringing the army in. Well, yeah, this, so it's to the state. So it's to the state level. Yeah. So it's either the commissioner of the SES or the commissioner of the RFS who says, right, we can't cope with this. Let's get the army there and have them ready to go. But we can't have this expectation that our defence forces are going to be able to deal with all of our emergency situations because they just simply can't logistically and they're not trained to. Become an RFS member, you've got to be specifically trained. Same goes for SES. Um, but if there is air cover that can be brought in, as we saw with those choppers, absolutely. That makes sense. Uses. Yeah. But bringing the army in to pull people's muddy furniture and throw it out of the window um, and or help clean up, I mean, I guess, you know, they can sort of do the labourer's job for us if, if that's necessary. But um, it, it seems to me that... Um, Given the number of disasters we are disasters we are having, um, we nearly need an army of people—not an army of people, but a, a cohort of people who specialise in these sorts of things. You know, like uh, the, the rescue period. You know, not just helicopters, but the rescue period. You know, like you know, riding boats, driving boats up and down the area. Um, the uh, the cleanup period, and also the rebuild period. And would you be an advocate for um, having? someone in charge and having people on standby. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we've got to find ways to drive our volunteer base into these emergency service organisations at a state level. No, but pay them. Like the army well, reserve gets paid. That's potentially. That's, that's potentially a, a sensible thing. Pay them and there's tax-free money so they train up. You're getting up. great skills. Yep. Learning team building. Yep. You're learning resilience. Yep. And, and you're learning things such as an ethos of respect and understanding and civic duty, which is important. Yeah, I, look, I think we, we're getting to that point now because typically our volunteer bases are not where they need to be to respond to these very significant catastrophic events. That's where the goalpost has changed. There's two elements to this. There's emergency response and then there's recovery. Um, and increasingly there's this um, grey area where we're now expecting the ADF to come in as part of the emergency response. Now, that might work if, if you can bring in a Navy chopper and pluck someone off a roof. Absolutely, yep. do it. Do whatever you need to to save lives. Um, and then, of course, uh, be at the hands of the states in terms of the cleanup. And it's interesting to see the response out of Queensland versus the response out of New South Wales yeah. in this regard. End of the day, though, the most skilled people in terms of managing these emergencies is the commissioners, be it of the RFS, be it of Marine Rescue, be it of SES, but what the states have got to do is make sure that logistically the emergency response is right and making sure all assets are deployed and then don't hold back. Bring in the defence forces as backup, have them available if need be and, and think differently in that regard because what we're seeing in the terms of the reporting over the last couple of days is, oh, yeah, you know, the ADEF offered up resources on X date and Y date and, you know, at this stage it wasn't accepted. I mean, that's not a way to do this, hmm. absolutely. Um, I think 
if anyone's learned anything in the last two years, it's the magnitude of these events means we've got to think differently about the emergency response well and truly before the cleanup because you, you've got to save lives. That's, that's, that's the utmost, most important thing is, is saving the life. Uh, and, and not only at the event though, but saving my livelihood post event too, saving me yeah, from which is the recovery part. enduring my trauma, my yep. enduring trauma. Yep. That's you know I don't need to, we as you know the broader community don't need to make someone's trauma in uh, either in the south coast from the bushfires or alternatively up in the north coast in the floods. We don't need we we've we, I think we all have a responsibility to make sure that the trauma is at least minimised, and uh, and that comes down to where do we place them. Once the event occurs, mm. um, how do we make sure they get some insurance back? How do we, if they want to rebuild, if they choose to rebuild, how do we help them rebuild? If they want to sell out the joint and move to somewhere else, like uh, I wanted to ask you about Steve Manny. I mean, how are they going, by the way? Yeah, they're, they're, they're great. I mean, they've, they've, they will, their lives will never be the same because of the fires. Yep. Uh, a very deep trauma. I'm sure they won't mind me saying this, but pleasingly, uh, they were able to, Steve's an owner builder. Yep. Um, and they were able to move into their home before Christmas and, but they sold their, their property. Yeah, they yeah. sold their property. So um, there's a good example. Yeah. They sold. Um, it nearly needs to be case studies put up so people in Lismore can see, mm. oh, here's a case study. Steve Manny copped their insurance, sold their property. They decided to go build, rebuild and move somewhere else. I mean, I don't know what yeah. they did. They, they moved somewhere else. Not far from Closer the to original their parents, place, but uh, in a much safer place. Yeah. Um, and that... That's the thing. People think about their own safety. And the other thing is triggers around these events is a major problem. So even the flood, the loss of homes in the floods has been a trigger for five years. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've got to be mindful of that. Every individual is different, as we agree. But, look, here's the case studies on what you, what people have done. And have Steve Mandy standing and, there. And, and inspire, be inspired. You, you interview him or someone interviews him. Steve Mandy, you know, he, this is what yeah, happened. I think Steve's done enough interviews. No, totally. But, but, I mean, but yeah, I mean, like, what did yeah. he do, for example, and how yeah. did it work for him and what were his steps and what was his thinking? And, yeah, I was, he was, was definitely Mandy was traumatised. Steve probably was, showed less, but Mandy was definitely traumatised. And, uh, you know, what were the feelings, how they dealt with it? Did, did they get, uh, you know, psychological help and, you know, did the state put that out there? I mean, you know, was it, how did I um, – uh, how did I uh, access these things or how did she access yeah. these things? Well, I'm very respectful. I mean, uh, humbly they are incredible friends of uh, mine that become that way, particularly after the fires, but love them both dearly. But uh, you're right, there are there are case examples where you can get through this. You've got to have that self-belief that you can get through it. We've seen a lot of um, a lot of relationship breakdowns, a lot of heartache. Um, because that can of, happen too. Absolutely. You've got to say that can a happen. A whole lot. I mean, people turning to alcohol to get through this. Yeah. Because there isn't the the, the counselling support on the ground in a lot of these regional communities. But um, even with the counselling support, Andrew, it can happen. Like even yeah. in your case, I mean, you're an example of it. Uh, you, know, you know, the personal relationships, the, the trauma is so heavy on your shoulders. Mm. Irrespective of the bond, <laughs> the bond gets tested in a in a big way, um, and the, people need to expect that this could happen. Uh, it might happen. It could be. A, yeah. a, it could actually be a consequence. The reason we didn't lose hundreds of lives that that morning with the fires uh, back on New Year's Eve, 2019, 2020 was because we had technology working, so people were well ad, well attuned to what was happening around yeah. them, and thousands of people knew to go to the beach even though they were still in harm's way, but they knew to go to the beach. Um, 
so we've got to think even differently about the innovation, the technology, and how we can use that better so that we do become informed so we don't see lives put at risk on a mass scale. Um, if if we'd seen hundreds and hundreds of lives lost, I, I, I don't know how we would have ever been able to rebuild on the south coast. Um, That's interesting, you know, you said about the technology because that, that security of technology is a big one. Absolutely. As well as security of supply of timber or whatever for the rebuild, security of technology because I remember – um, visiting um, Peter and Vanessa, I think it is, at Mogo in the Mogo Art Gallery. Yeah. And they told me that they received a text. They had the granddaughter or grandson's granddaughter, I think, was staying with them overnight and they received a text at like 6 in the morning. That's right, 6 a.m. text. And uh, that text message saved hundreds, hundreds of lives. He, he, they said they grabbed their kids, they left all the paintings, all his pottery, every, all his equipment, everything yep. there. And within an hour and a half, the fire just ran straight through the joint at Mogo and I, I saw it was incinerated. The, the house and the the pottery um, studio, gone, like just – and all the trees, everything gone. And everything inside are gone. But, and they got out in time and they, they, were, mm. they were safe. And you know, thankfully they've been able to rebuild that. So security of technology is a big one. So we've got an election coming up, right? We've got a federal election coming up and, you know, you're, you're going to run for, you know – a new seat, um, and we have all these traumas going on at the moment, floods, etc. And we've had the fires, and we have our prime minister, and he just gets hammered from pillar to post. Scott, he's still getting hammered now for you know going to Hawaii during the bushfire period, even if though that was a you know, probably a mistake in hindsight. Um, still getting hammered for that. Um, didn't do too well recently when he was up in uh, up in the Northern Rivers. Um, he got hammered when he went up there as well. You're a guy who's well-versed in politics, but these dramatic events, what would you say to him, Scott, how to play it? What would you be saying well, to him? Well, I think the, the reality is he's, he's learnt as he goes like any Australian would. Uh, he learned from the Cabago experience. I know that because I've seen seen some of those changes. So, for instance, I think when I had a look at the numbers last week, I mean, three hundred and thirty thousand Australians had received a, a cash payment pretty much immediately. Um, no mucking around with paperwork. None of the challenges with that. That was just cash straight in the hands of victims. So that that was the first sign. Um, I think the. The fact that we expect our politicians to come to town and the media to follow and, you know, the images of, of wrapping around victims, that circus has got to stop. So that's probably what I would say to him. Um, and the same goes for Dom. Don't feel compelled. I, I, I think if you, if you, I think you need to embrace Australians, but we've got to think about how we want it done. And the problem, the big problem he's got also, it's on the eve of an election, so naturally there's going to be politics. So let's peel this back. Uh, Scott Morrison is a compassionate human being. He doesn't want to see Australians suffer. Otherwise, he wouldn't be Prime Minister. So uh, to that end, I think learning from each experience is really important. I mean, if you look at the changes they've made since the bushfires, I mean, to now have national emergency declarations, which should reflect the scale of the types of events so that the paperwork is turned off, let's, let's even think differently about that. Let's stop the paperwork. You know, let's let's trust Australians, and if someone's doing the wrong thing, we go back and investigate afterwards. But but take the risk that knowing that ninety nine point nine percent of Australians are going to do the right thing in these circumstances. So build up that trust. Um, 
I don't think we should have politicians anywhere near these emergency zones, uh, particularly when they're still active emergency zones. Um, the reality is that, um, you know, the, the PM went into a, a live fire zone. He's also obviously expectations that premiers be there in live emergency zones. That that can quite often soak up valuable resources that could otherwise be going into saving someone. So we've got to have an understanding that, yes, the politicians will come to visit, but it might be a week or two afterwards till the, the first responders are, are wrapping their arms around the community. Um, I think the best thing that can happen is walking around the evacuation centres without the cameras. I mean, I I always did it when I was a member. Um, and then that way you're able to have those personal discussions. And I think Scott has a point when he said, oh, I didn't want cameras breaching the privacy of the victims when I'm talking to them. That's true. That's actually a real thing. And that then just gives people the ability to be able to say what they need to without without any pressure, without a camera being shoved in your face. And it makes it easier for the, the PM or the Premier because, you know, they're very conscious of how that's going to look on the news as opposed to looking in the eyes of someone who's suffering and trying to support them. You should never, ever walk into any of these zones without an answer because that's the other thing. wouldn't matter if it was bringing a, a, a generator to the people of Cabago at their showground so they could start to get food in to feed the thousands of people that were dependent on them. Um, the other thing which we have to be very honest about is that the community uh, in many cases does step up and the volunteerism is, volunteerism is incredible, the establishment of little uh, supply stores, be it in local halls or wherever it might be, that stuff is amazing and it is community driven. We need to think about how they can be better supported to be able to do that volunteerism because quite often when you're going through trauma as a community, you see people do incredible things. So we need to harness that incredible goodwill. And that's where I think the political leadership needs to sit alongside that, not necessarily create uh, or add to the, in many cases, the incredible trauma people are going through emotionally. So, yeah, look, I think in fairness to him, um, uh, you know, he, he, as PM, they want to help. Um, no one likes to be criticised. Um, there's always got to be honesty in everything that happens around a natural disaster um, and there's got to be the right expectations set and that is that given the scale of these events, no government department, no emergency service personnel, not even a prime minister is going to be able to stop some of this stuff. We've got to be able to get ourselves better prepared in advance and, yeah, I, you know, I think it's very hard. Um, it's very easy to criticise um, but, and you know, on occasion... I've learned, particularly the experiences that I've had, you've got to be able to re reflect the true thinking of a community when they're in trauma um, and then get it right straight away. So, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think, it's, I think it's, a bit, it's a bit hard on him at the moment, but he understands, you know, as, as the Prime Minister, that that's what you have to, to obviously respond to as PM. But uh, the main thing is... I suspect a lot of locals up there just want to be able to talk directly to him about their experience to try and stop it happening to their fellow Australians and that that's the that's the big thing that is important in that regard. Um, yeah, so I know the media won't like it, but I'd be doing more visits without the cameras. I, I really hope that you win your seat um, coming up in the federal election because I think that there's sort of a... I hate the word new normal, but there is a new normal in terms of um, governments and, and how we have to respond to 
disasters and we need people with experience in it, but we need level-headed people and we need people who can sit down with a PM and actually have this sort of conversation with him. And, and, and I know, I know him and I, I know he's, he's very smart and level and he will do things as long as he's got the right people advising him. And I think that we need in our parliament at a federal level, I'm only talking federally now, someone with uh, your level of, uh, you know, the hand of reason. That's what we need. Uh, take away all the blame and all the politics and all the bullshit. How do we actually make sure that Australians don't keep suffering this same outcome over and over and over again? And we don't act like stupid people that is doing the same thing all the time without change. So, Andrew Constance, thanks very much. And I appreciate your, um, your frankness and, uh, and probably more importantly, your insight. Thanks very much, mate. That's right. Thanks, Mark. And uh, thanks for, for what you're doing. I mean, you, you've, you've seen it yourself firsthand, but the election's about the community. It's got yeah. to be a positive experience. Yeah. Everyone's exhausted after the pandemic and, and these events. So we need to be gentle with our, our politics a bit over the next couple of months. And it, the election needs to be a positive experience for everyone. And it is about the community. So, so thanks for what you just said. Well, our mates of the media <laughs> probably aren't going to let that happen. They're going to hammer it hard. But anyway, I, for me, as a, as a, a voter, um, I agree with what you just said. And uh, I, I'm prepared to actually discount what I see in the in the clicks and the the you know and all the sort of the the noise, I'm prepared to um, be much more understanding and lighter and gentler, probably more importantly, on those fair and politicians who are trying to do the right thing. Whether it's Labor, Liberal, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Just everybody. Um, and uh, and I and uh, I look forward to getting through this election, getting all the crap behind us, and then rebuilding. I think that's what the country's got to do. We've got to rebuild in, in our attitude mm. and, uh, and I think you know, you're, you're kicking it off with this conversation and I think this is a great conversation to have. Appreciate it. All the best to you, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast. <laughs>